This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Brian Hamrick. Thanks for being on the show, Brian. Hey, Whitney. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, honored to have you on the show. Brian controls over $32 million in apartment, self-storage, and office commercial real estate, as well as performing and non-performing notes. He's raised over $9 million from investors through syndications and funds, and he also hosts the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. Brian, welcome to the show. Give us a little more about your focus in real estate, and let's jump into you know your superpower and the thing we're going to just dive into today to help the listener. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Whitney, thanks for having me on your show. You know, I'm an opportunistic investor. I invest in apartments. I invest in office, a little bit of retail. um, Self-storage is one of my favorites and performing and non-performing notes. And I've also uh, um, dabbled in some uh, ground up uh, apartment development, too. So I've done a lot. I worked with a lot of great partners. And I I always like to come prepared to shows like yours and bring my A game. So I actually thought, you know, I've had a lot of conversations in the past couple months about fund structure because I've started a fund. I spent about a year trying to figure out how to do a fund. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to talk about fund structure today. It's not necessarily my superpower. I'm not an attorney, but I've certainly gone down that road and would love to talk about it. No doubt about it. I would love to talk about that. And and I appreciate you just bringing it up and and that you, I mean, spending a year of research learning this, you're going to be so much more knowledgeable about this than, than I am for sure. Uh, but, but, you know, it's just that you've done it too. But I want us to get into, you know, what you're talking about versus, you know, versus say the normal syndication or, or you know, deal by deal syndication that some people have heard different, they call different things. And, and, uh, and you, you just elaborate on, on the pros, cons, and, and we'll get into some of that. So, so thank you for that. Thank you for being on the show. But let's jump in. Tell us a little about maybe, well, I guess I want to back up. I was going to say the fun that you did, but, but back up a little bit to you, even your research for a year. Where did you go to find research? What were, your, the, main, what were the main things that you know, helped you, Brian, to, to learn even most of the things you're going to share with us today? Well, I looked for books on the topic, could not really find many books. I went to networking events, national networking events, and probably that's the best source to to find people who have actually put their own funds together and and to talk to them and say, why did you structure it this way? How did you structure it? What were some of the considerations? And really, when you talk to 10 different people who have started 10 different funds, you get 10 different, entirely different answers as to how they went about it and what kind of structure they have. So it, it can be confusing and daunting. But before I get into that, I mean, let's make sure people understand what a fund is and how it's different from a syndication. Please. I've certainly syndicated apartment buildings, uh, self-storage. These are single asset syndications where you identify the property, you identify the closing date, you go out, you raise your money. And once you close, you've got your investors, they're locked in and maybe you hold it five years, 10 years, whatever, but that's a, a single asset syndication. And I know you've done hundred million in syndication. So you're very familiar with that process now. But let's say you want to go out and you're not sure what you're going to buy, but you know, okay, there's a lot of retail right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. And and I'm sorry, there's a lot of distress right now in the retail area. That's what I mean to say. And let's say you want to go out and just pick up distressed retail centers, shopping malls, uh, strip centers, things like that. But you're not sure exactly what the asset is going to be. 
So you might start a fund that is meant to raise the money before you identify the asset. And it could be multiple assets that you would pick up in this fund. And that's why you would do a fund structure as opposed to just a single uh, asset syndication. Okay, so there's a lot to think through there, right? Why we would do this and when and, and who should do this. Uh, I mean, so maybe even some of the timeline, uh, you know, people are thinking, okay, well, when, do, when am I going to be raising the money or when's it going to be deployed and, and some of those things working or to think through. Uh, but maybe we can start with too, even the, the types of uh, properties we should be thinking about acquiring or do they have to be the same or can we purchase different types in that fund? Uh, just elaborate on that some. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about any fund that I may or may not have done because it's a 506B, but I'll just okay. kind of take you through okay. it in general, uh, kind of from a general perspective, because I'm not an attorney or a CPA. So you should always, of course, talk to your, your experts on your team about these things. But as far as identifying the asset, it, you know, if you're an apartment investor, you might say the assets that we're going to go after are distressed assets that are in the 20 to 40 unit range. And we're going to pick these up for a million to a million and a half each. We don't know what they are yet, but we're going to raise enough money so that whenever we see those opportunities, we can close quickly because we've already uh, had commitments for the funds to close. And we may not even need uh, lender financing because we'll, we'll be raising that money from our investors. So, so that's the, from the asset side, you want to identify what the asset is going to be. Is it going to be apartments? Is it going to be retail centers? Is it going to be cryptocurrency? You know, wh whatever it might be, identify that. But then also think, well, what if, what if we're investing, what if we're only going after retail, but we come across an office building that's distressed that we can pick up and it makes sense? Do you want to widen the parameters of your fund and, and make sure that, you know, it's transparent to your investors in such a way that you as the operator have the leeway to include office in your retail. So you, you have to take these things into consideration when you're putting together your fund. Any kind of timeframe restrictions or the duration of the fund, things like that we should be thinking about? Well, yeah, that's always important because if you're, let's say you're buying apartment buildings, well, what is your window of time that you need to uh, be able to acquire these? Are, are, is your fund only gonna be open for a year? You're gonna acquire these assets achieve the upside value and dispose of them within three years, five years, 10 years, you need to figure that out. And because you're on kind of a staggered schedule, you know, you don't know when you're going to find the asset. You don't know when you're going to close on it. You don't know how many assets you're going to find and over what period of time you need to build that flexibility into your fund to say, you know what, this may not be your traditional three to five year fund. This may be a seven year fund or a 10 year fund. And you have to really think about it in that way as to, well, how are you going to get your investors in and how long do you need to let them know that they're going to be in that fund? They definitely are going to want to know, right? They're going to want to know when all these things are going to happen. And so you better have an idea about this time period that you're projecting. But, you know, thinking about those people that you're talking about, those investors, you know, in you, know, you have to project some kind of return, right? And and how do you do that or, or how, you know, the returns you'll be offering to investors? Well, so that's, I always say that's a marketing question. You know, you have to know your investors. What are their timeframes? I mean, I have investors who have, are in their 70s and they've told me, I don't want to invest in something for 10 years because I may not be around for 10 years. So, you know, it, does that mean I need to make it a five-year fund? And is that, would that even work with the type of asset that I'm buying under the you know, the, the parameters under which I'm buying them. The returns 
are always different. And like I said, you, you talk to 10 different fund operators, you're going to get 10 different answers. So I've talked to operators in the note world who basically their fund is you invest with me and you're going to get a straight up 8% return. If you invest over 150,000, I'll make it 9%. You know, and, and that's it. It's just a flat. There's no equity upside to that. Um, and then you have other people who structure their fund much like we might structure our syndications where you have a cash on cash preferred return each year. And then an IRR and internal rate of return or annualized return, that's 18, 20% once you liquidate. The problem is because it's, it's kind of a blind pool, you don't know exactly what asset you're buying. So you're not able to run the numbers really completely before you raise that money you don't know exactly what the returns are going to be. So you have to make sure you build in all kinds of cushion and take into account all kinds of variables to be able to get to a return that you know your, your investors will get excited about. Because again, it's, it's always a marketing issue. You don't want to come out with a 4% preferred return and 5% annualized return because the investors will just say, well, I can go to Whitney and, and do much better. So you want to make sure it's, it's sexy enough for your investors, but not overly sexy in which you can't deliver. Are there any other, any other things about just specific ways to provide those returns or you know, that, that you're providing them to investors? The easiest way is just a straight up preferred return. You know, 8 to 12%. That's what you're going to get. And you know, it's a five-year fund and we'll get you your money back at the end of five years. That's the easiest way because it, it requires uh, very little bookkeeping. As you get into more detailed returns with preferred return, cash on cash, annualized return once you, once you uh, dispose of the assets, then there's a lot more bookkeeping. And you know it's very easy with the cash on cash return to say, all right, when this investor invested on from this date, their cash on cash return starts there. They get a certain percentage prorated for the amount of time they've been in. But when you get to the annualized return, which is once we've disposed of all the assets in this fund, we've, we're, we've paid back our investors, and now we're going to pay out the profit, you need to be able to make sure that the people who got in early and the people who got in later are being compensated equally. Their compensation is balanced because you don't want to have a lopsided fund where the later you get in, the more profit participation you're going to get in the back end. So that was something that I really had to struggle with to figure out mathematically, well, how do we make sure that someone who gets in early is going to have the same annualized return or internal rate of return as someone who gets in late? And, and that, that was probably the biggest challenge. And, I, and I, do you want to hear the answer? Yeah, well, of course. Okay. So what you have to do is you have to take a weighted ownership ratio for each, each uh, investor. And that you're basically weighting the number of days. When I say weight, it's W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, weighting the number of days that they're in the investment with the number of units or shares that they've purchased. And, and then that gives them a percentage of ownership that is then applied toward that annualized return when it comes time to pay that out. Our guest is Michael Episcope. Thanks for being back on the show, Michael. 
Thank you for having me, Whitney. Yeah, I know Michael and I discussed a strengthening investor relations to scale your business and scaling your syndication business on May the 25th. I encourage you to go back and listen to that show. But Michael has lots of skill sets in this business. They've grown an amazing brand and business just in the syndication space and has many things we're going to discuss today, but specifically about funds and how they have structured funds, how they operate funds, and just giving us some advice there from his expertise. But a little about him in case you missed the last show. He's a principal of Origin Investments, co-chairs the Investment Committee and Overseas Investor Relations, Marketing and Company Operations. He brings 25 years of investment and risk management experience to the company and believes that calculated risk-taking in inefficient markets is the key to building wealth. Michael, again, welcome back to the show. Why don't you just give us, I'm going to encourage the listeners to go back and listen to your other show because there was so much value into that as well. And I know so many are going to want to hear as they're growing their syndication brand and business and working and scaling their business, working with investors. But why don't you just at a high level, talk about funds a little bit, you know, what you are using funds for now. And let's dive into some of the details of how you all pick maybe certain types of funds or structure them. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I want to comment too, because it's funny hearing you read my bio there and calculated risk-taking. What that really comes down to is the rule number one, don't lose money in investing. And that's what it's about. You know, we've been investing since 2007. That's when my partner and I started the firm. And it was it was very quickly that we decided to structure things as a fund and a little bit different than, you know, a lot of syndicators out there and things. And the reason why we did that was we just believe it's a better way to invest. It's better for us as managers, and I'll get into that, but it's also a better way for investors to invest as well because it provides diversification. You know, fund is really like a company as well. And you you think about the managers promote. And when you do individual deals, the managers promote is not cross collateralized, meaning if you do great on one deal, the manager is going to get paid. If you don't do well on another deal, the manager won't get paid, but net net, they do get paid on those deals. So in a fund, all of those promotes our performance fees are cross collateralized into one. So when we're really thinking about adding deals to the fund, there's a lot of time and effort and discipline that goes into that. And our whole team is compensated through the fund structure as well. So we have a credit committee that goes well beyond my partner and I. It's also all the team members who have a vested interest in the fund. And when people bring deals to committee, when our acquisition officers do, those are scrutinized and they're heavily scrutinized because the wrong deal contain the entire fund. So from a discipline standpoint, there's a much higher bar for what gets into the fund because when you have two or $300 million in a single fund and one deal has the potential to kind of bring the whole thing down and bring you below that preferred return, it's a different threshold. And then when I say it's better for us as managers, what I mean by that, I'm sure most people's minds are going to the fees. The fees are actually not any different. So we charge an asset management fee. In most cases, you're going to get that on a syndication will either charge a committed fee on that capital or an acquisition fee. And you're going to get those same things on syndications as well. But for us, when we're going out to the market and we're competing for deals, the biggest thing is proving that you have capital. And when you come to the table and you are one of three, one of five, one of 10 investors who are looking at a deal and the seller is trying to qualify you and somebody's coming, well, you know, we don't actually have the capital, but we can close, trust us. 
that's not as good of a story as saying, look, we've got a $200 million fund and we can close in 30 days. And in today's market, that's incredibly important to have that advantage to be able to close quickly, use the fund capital, knowing that you have investors there who are ready to write a check for a deal that's approved within a box itself. So there are a multitude of advantages to a fund. I know some people don't like to give up that control. They like to actually pick and choose their deals. But I think understanding you know, the benefits, the pros and cons of both is, is really, really important. And the last thing I would add is sometimes it's not an or, it's an and. So we actually, in our funds, tend to use sidecar vehicles. So for deals that you know, maybe are too big for the fund if we're only going to put $15 million of equity into the fund, but the deal requires $25 million. That $10 million then goes to investors in a sidecar vehicle to fund investors generally at more favorable fees so they can invest in that deal. And they can know investing in that deal that this has already been vetted by us, by the fund managers. This is something that we're putting into the fund. So it really shortcuts that because you've already made the decision to invest with us, with Origin in this fund, it most likely fits your risk profile. So those are actually advantages as well when it comes to even, you know, when we're syndicating side deals and participating in individual deals. So incredible there. You answered so many of my questions before I even asked them, which is great. But while you're talking about sidecars, it's something I've heard a lot more about recently. And I think as more people are looking into fund structures and how to do this, it's something that's coming up. Can you speak though to you know, which investor is going to invest in the fund versus the sidecar and why? Well, believe it or not, a lot of fund investors, I would say 80% of them are interested in sidecars, sidecar vehicles, because for the reasons I just mentioned, they know that they've already been vetted. These are deals that we like. These are deals that we have high conviction in. And oftentimes, if somebody's putting a half million dollars into a fund, they have more money that they're willing to invest. So they're you know, very likely to come in to a sidecar vehicle like this. So it's a large portion. And what we found more than anything is that this is going to be a bigger part of our business going forward. And it's something that's in high demand. And for the few deals that we have syndicated... The demand has been so overwhelming that it's difficult to give a piece to everybody because in our funds, we might have three or 400 people. And when you have a seven, 10, even $15 million deal, those end up being fully subscribed within a day or two. And so there are a lot of investors who end up not participating because we generally do this on a pro rata basis. So we're going to go out to our largest investors first and give them a piece and then kind of work our way down the reins. But you know what we found is that everybody really wants to participate or that 80%. So going forward, even as we're concepting a new fund that's going to be out, we'll be marketing in the third quarter and then we'll be coming out with it in the fourth quarter. But almost every single deal will have a syndication component to it so that investors can get a piece of those individual deals as well. Okay, so just to bring some clarity there for the listener. So you're going to have this big fund that will be purchasing numerous projects, right? And the investors may invest in the fund and they don't know the exact deals at that time yet, right? They're trusting you all, they're trusting your group. They understand the risk level, those things, the type of fund that you're doing. But then the sidecar is going to be deal specific, right? And so you have this deal you're moving forward with and then you have a sidecar that's attached to a specific project. Is that correct? That's 100% correct. And if, you know, I'll give some tangible examples. So if we come out with this fund in the fourth quarter right now, we're targeting 
$150 million in fund size. And so when we're looking at from a risk management perspective about how to allocate and diversify across this fund, this will be all ground up development. We'll have about eight to 10 deals in there. And there's also what we call a GP sleeve, a general partner sleeve. So those are high margin deals where we are participating in the general partnership. But the other you know, eight or nine deals that will be in this fund, we don't want any more than 10% of a deal in the fund. So if your typical ground up multifamily development deal is $25 million and we're putting $15 million in the fund, that requires $10 million of additional equity as that sidecar vehicle and investors are participating right alongside the fund in those. But when you add that up, that's almost $100 million in syndication. So the net of it is the fund will have about $150 million in committed equity. Those fund investors will get the first look at those sidecar opportunities, which will be about $100 million. So in all, that's about $250 million in deals that we'll do in that particular fund itself. Will your fund be 506B, 506C? 506C. And then something I've learned recently, though, what about your sidecars? Because they could be a 506B then. Is that correct? Or do you all do that? Yeah, but we, we operate under the 506C rules, even in sidecars. So, you know, with those, again, we don't market those per se on a broad marketing because generally all of those sidecar interests, they get gobbled up by fund investors. So there's no reason for us to broadly market those. And it's usually an outreach by our investor relations department going out to individuals in batches and letting them know about the opportunity. But nonetheless, you know, there's no reason for us to use 506B when we can use 506C. It gives us a little bit just, you know, more room to maneuver. Sure. What about just the structure of the fund? And so just so the listener can understand, I mean, there's, I mean, you can structure them almost any way you can think of, right? But some common ways I know recently I've heard people talking about just like 70-30 split or some people call it like an 80-22, you know, like an 80-20 split, then like a 2% acquisition fee or something like that. But how do you all structure that? How do you think through how to do that? Yeah, so you're talking about fees, and I think there's a couple of things. So in our our funds, I'll start with sort of the legal structure, if you will. So we have two funds that are operating today, and then one that is on the horizon. And with our funds today, we have an income plus fund, and that's more for the income-oriented investor. That has about a 6.2% annualized yield. And then there's another, call it 3 to 4% of appreciation that we're targeting that fund for a total return of about 10%. And that fund actually has a REIT blocker in it for tax advantages. And then, but you're investing through an LLC. So, you know, for people who are investing in non-taxable accounts, the REIT blocker helps with blocking UBTI and and it has other tax advantages, the 20% deduction as well. In our QOZ fund, we do not have a REIT blocker. That is purely an LLC that you're investing in, and that has some great tax advantages. And then in the next fund that we're going to be coming out with, that will also be an LLC, a limited liability corporation to which investors will get a K-1. And I'm not sure if we're going to do a REIT blocker or not in that fund, but what you're talking about specifically fees, Whitney, I'll I'll get to that. In our income plus fund, what we charge is a 1.25% annual asset management fee on that fund, and then a 10% performance fee. Now, the advantage to that fund is it's open-ended. And so when investors are coming in to that fund, they're investing all of their capital at once and they're diversified across the existing deals in that fund. So it's a little bit different than a closed-end fund where you committed your capital and then it's called over a period of time. And there's a big advantage to having all of your capital working at once 
And that fund is then, then marked to market on a monthly basis and dividends are provided on a monthly basis as well. If you don't want the dividend, you can enroll in the drip and you can just reinvest those along the way. And then in our QOZ fund, that is purely ground up development. That is also a one point, I should forget, I think it's one and a half or 1.25. I'll go with the higher number. So people don't call me out. It's still a good number. One and a half percent and then a 15% performance fee. And in all our performance fees, and the thing about this market is it's kind of all over the place where people charge fees. And I understand this, what you have to look at from an investor is really compare the gross to net. So you look at what it is at the end of the day, if two investment managers are saying, look, at the end of five years, you're going to double your money, right? That's the pro forma, right? Let's throw that out of how accurate those are for a second. But what matters is the gross to net, right? There's always going to be fees in these funds. We have a team of 30 who are working on behalf of, you know, almost 1,600 investors. So our fees are the annual asset management fee. In some cases, we do get an acquisition fee. In some cases, if we're structuring a fund, we might do a committed fee. But in fact, this fund that we're coming out in the fourth quarter, we've actually decided to go away from the committed fee after talking to our investors because they would much rather have the variable cost of an acquisition fee than the committed fee. What a committed fee means is that if you have a closed-end fund and you commit a million dollars to the fund, you are paying whatever that annual committed fee is from the day that you make that commitment. So if it's 1.5%, you will be paying that manager $15,000 a year starting on day one. If you look at it from an acquisition fee standpoint, then you're only paying once the manager finds a deal, right? The fees generally come out to the same as long as there's the velocity of capital and the manager is doing their job, if we're doing our job and putting out capital in, you know, call it two, two and a half years. But if we're not, then the risk falls on us and not the investor. So that's always a risk of investing in a fund. You commit to a million dollars and the manager can only put out, you know, six or seven hundred thousand dollars and you've paid fees on the whole thing. But the way that we're operating, you know, going forward is we're just trying to create better structures, more friendly to investors and, and meeting the market demand and, and continuing on our structures going forward. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 